this session with Dr. Jamate, we discuss gender-affirming care for youth within the context of family therapy and a broader political landscape, the intersection of the parental experience and their gender journeys and sense of ambiguous loss, and the usefulness of mapping love in families. Welcome to the AFTA podcast. I am Naveed Zamani and I am your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Sean Jamate. Dr. Sean V. Jamate is a clinical family psychologist in pri- private practice in Northern California, the founder and CEO of the Gender Health Training Institute, the Trans Family Alliance, and Quest Family Therapy. He specializes in family therapy with couples, families, and individuals across the lifespan with a particular focus on transgender, non-binary, and gender-expansive youth and their families. He is an SOC7 Certified Mentor for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health and is on faculty for their Global Education Institute. He is also a researcher, author, international speaker, and professor teaching graduate and postgraduate courses in LGBTQ psychology and family systems. He has served on the board of local and national family therapy organizations, is an advisory member of Mind the Gap, a group dedicated to gender-affirming care for trans youth and their families, and the author of several articles and book chapters on gender, sexuality, and family work. Sean, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, I'm curious where your attention is at in your work these days. <laughs> that's, that's a big question, actually, <laughs> given the, <clears throat> the political landscape for transgender youth. Ah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, the tension is, well, on several levels. One is in my own practice and how I'm working with uh, trans youth and their families and how I'm supporting parents. Uh, the other is in my teaching and training other clinicians on how to work in a gender affirmative way and doing it in a political landscape where um, what we're doing is being called into question, criminalized and um, yeah, completely misinformed, really. Um, and so <clears throat> I, it's often, I often try and like, I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time in the politics of all of it. And yet it's hard to, to avoid it when I have clinicians contacting me saying, you know, what does it mean that they're going to, you know, uh, make this a felony to provide gender affirming care for youth? Or, you know, I have families that are reaching out who are in states where they may lose their children like in Texas, for um, affirming their kids' gender and and also um, dealing with other uh, clinicians out there and medical providers and folks who are using research from like the 80s uh, or, or, you know, very dated stuff or stuff from other countries that doesn't translate well to what we're doing now and is also um, distorted as a evidence of why it's problematic. And so that's the landscape in which I work <laughs> and teach. And um, the beauty is that there are so many people stepping in who really care, who want to make a difference and, are, and, and don't want to be captured by all of that stuff. And the struggle is on the, the family side, like with the families I work with, I have families that are 
reading all of the misinformation out there and getting really scared. And then they're getting afraid about what they're going to do with their kids and, and how they're going to help them. And I think one of the things I, <clears throat> I get really concerned about is that we spend a lot of time focused on medical treatment mm. and we don't focus on the whole human and we don't fa- focus on the families and, and the relationships and all that piece of that's going on. We get so caught up in, in medical treatment that we forget about the whole human and the, the whole system within which they're, they're living and really supporting that and helping them. So I'm hoping actually <laughs> to push that envelope and change that narrative as much as I can. So, Well, I really appreciate how you're describing this because as I'm understanding what you're saying, Sean, that there's some ways that you're in some really rich connected work and like ways that you're so curious or interested in this, um, this world uh, sphere of work that you're doing with the trans community and that there's such a heavy political overlay. And I think, uh, you know, I want to be careful about bringing in statistics that I'm not too certain on, but my understanding is the last four years has been a huge increase in attacks against trans youth and communities. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to, I want to be careful of not perpetrating a continuation of talking about the political overlay. And to your point also, it's hard to, not move that out of it so i I guess there's a way where i i guess i want to like leave that uh option open of ways that you might want to talk about it that you prefer given that like you're probably often forced to talk about in some particular ways and also my curiosity really goes to how it is as a family therapist you're working with the wholeness of communities these communities well I'll, i'll add a few nuances to all of that i'm also transgender myself and so Um, working in, in a, um, working with a community that is also part of your own community Mm. in a sense, um, and helping them sort of navigate these really, I mean, when your kid is struggling with their gender, especially if they're struggling to the level where they need some kind of medical care, it's a scary, scary place for parents. You know, to one, we're scared about medical stuff in general. You know, who wants to actually um, give their kids medications or do anything that is going to send them down a path? Um, you know, if that's the narrative that's out there, that's going to send them down a path. And and there's this fear about needing to know stuff that we can't possibly know. As human beings, we can't possibly know what we're going to be like in 10 years. I mean, just even as adults, we struggle to know what we're going to be like in 10 years. Ask a kid what that is, and that's really hard. And we're asking parents to make some decisions that, um, you know, I will say that they in some ways can have lifelong effects. And in other ways, they're not as uh, detrimental as we might say, because I know that there are people who move through gender in their lifetime who might move into one way of presenting themselves and medically transition in certain ways and then move back at a later time in their life or at another time. And that's fully authentic for them. So they're more, they're moving in their developmental process and it is more of a developmental process. And our expectation that we're going to know stuff today about what the whole future will be like is really ridiculous <laughs> in, in my stance. It's, it's not possible. Um, we do our best with the moment we have to create the best care in that moment and to help families really uh, find that. Um, 
the wisdom that's there in their child as well. And, and I think the pathologization of gender in, in and of itself is problematic. You know, that this idea that there's only two ways of being in the world, which I love. I mean, I have to say the beauty of children today and what they're doing in upending sort of these gender structures, I think they're teaching us something. And I think as older folks, we have a tendency to look back at the younger generations and say, oh, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket <laughs> and they don't know what they're doing and all this kind of stuff. But the truth is, younger generations have some knowledge that we don't. And we struggle with these notions that we've been taught and these very binary notions. And they've, they're given a whole different world. And I think they can teach us um, some much more expansive ways of being. That doesn't, in many cases, doesn't require anything medical, but it does require honoring where people are. And, um, and I would say for me in my practice, it's like, it's, it's just, it used to be before the upswing of the political stuff. So I will say there is truth to the fact that there are more kids showing up and particularly we have more of those folks assigned female showing up than did before. Um, there are some specific reasons that I think that that is happening. Um, but a lot of it is that we're all speculating on what's creating these numbers. I think part of it is this evolution that's happening. And we do know that the numbers that actually come into gender clinics are more one-to-one. -one. Mm. Uh, but the people who are maybe questioning their gender more are than they did before are those who are assigned female at birth. And, and those kiddos, um, I think it has to do with mirroring and visibility. So like you don't know something's possible. I'll do it for myself. I didn't know it was possible to transition and really knew it was possible until I was in my 30s mm. because of the age where I was at. But I told everybody I was a boy when I was three. Mm. Right. So, so I had an experience of, of shutting it down and then realizing when I was mirrored, I finally saw something where I, people were telling my story. And I was like, oh, my God, this is me. This is I have to deal with this. I have to do this. Um, I actually fought it first, which is what most people do. They try and make it go away, as do kids, um, especially in a landscape where it's not OK to be who you are. <clears throat> so um, I think in this idea that there's a. There's a this upswing is a, related to um, it being a cool thing, <clears throat> I think, is also if you look at the data, class climate data and the rest of it on what kids experiences are when they're gender diverse in school and growing up, it's not pretty. I don't think anybody would actually choose it. It's kind of the same argument we gave with gay and lesbian people in the 70s and 80s and said, you know, you know, you're you're doing this because your friends do, you know, or it's a contagion kind of thing. Right. And and actually you see those same kinds of narratives playing out politically now, but um I keep going back and forth, but I would say with the the hard part right now with families is that historically I would say when I first started doing this work, people struggled a lot. And they and there were a lot of binary notions, and we were all trying to make sense out of all this stuff. And then um, people started understanding this a whole lot more. Parents started understanding this a whole lot more, and there's a whole lot more following the kid and figuring out what was right for them. And we've always done that. <clears throat> when, um, at least in the camp that I'm in, we don't rubber stamp anybody on anything. And um, but parents were getting it. You know, they were informed about gender, and so they were seeing it in their kids younger, and they were getting what was happening. They weren't questioning it. They weren't challenging it in the same ways. And so there was a period of time where it felt kind of easy to do the work. 
where you were you were collaborating with people and you were just helping the families navigate the systems that they had to navigate. And um, nowadays, <clears throat> there's a couple of issues that come up that one is with the political backlash, everybody's questioning everything uh-huh. and everybody's way more scared. And so the the family work is really around holding the parents and helping them actually hear their kids and learn to listen because they're so captured by fear that they can't, they're having trouble listening to their kids. And so there's a lot of that um, kind of thing that's going on. I think another thing that, that we're, that's really getting named right now, which is really important is that parents go through ambiguous loss. Many do. Most parents do that I work with. Some don't. <clears throat> Some think they don't then come back later and realize they are. But, um, because your kid's not dying, but you're losing something related to a whole story you've built about them around their gender and what that yeah. meant for them and what that meant for you as a parent. And a lot of parents who are really accepting, they they end up in this position where they start struggling because they're, they know they accept their kid and yet they're having all these feelings of grief and loss. Right. And so I think that's a process that I spent a lot of time working with parents on helping them um, them navigate that as well. Um, you know, really the listening, helping to get your kid in focus, figure out what they need, and then um, understanding that kids do know their gender. Um, they may not know exactly where to go with it or all the ramifications, and that's part of what we do as well, is that informed consent thing of understanding what we're talking about and what's possible. Um, and and the fluidity, I think that's the other thing that's changed over time is this um, sort of non-binary identities <clears throat> have made it possible for us is to see an expansiveness of possibility around people can do gender. And it, again, doesn't always involve medical care. So it's like helping kids dial in what's really most authentic for them and then helping parents also get their kid in focus and really hear what's most authentic for them. Uh, and realize what's their fears and what's their not, and also what they can know and what they can't know. And what part of this process is, is a developmental process and staying with your kid along the way. I think there's this, also this notion that you just get medical care and it's all over. <laughs> and it doesn't work that way either. There's a lot of um, things you have to navigate with all of that. And it's an ongoing process of, of stuff. Um, so yeah, I end up bringing in like, I tend to be very narratively informed. So I, I tend to bring in a lot of helping families to externalize the oppression and the, the transphobia that's out there, that this, the stuff that they carry, but as well as the stuff that they're hearing and be able to, as a family, put that out there and realize how it's influencing them and getting them, you know, capturing them in particular ways. And, and I find that there's a lot of, I end up doing a lot of that kind of, <laughs> let's, let's talk about what's really happening and let's talk about the messages you're getting and, you know, and why you might be feeling these kinds of ways. And, um, and then the other piece that I would say is a change in my work is the intersections of, it's not, a, it's stuff I've been doing, but it's, more often than not, the people who come to me now are the more complex cases and where, you know, there's not a long ongoing history. Maybe people just just are coming out right now and they're kind of unpacking what that stuff is. Um, more often than not, I have neurodivergent clients. And so a lot of this intersection around um, autism or neurodiversity and um 
in the ways that that people are showing up um and a lot of people are diagnosing themselves with autism or or autistic traits and stuff like that but i see a lot of these these intersections with the more complicated cases and then eating disorders is another one that shows up common and sort of unpacking these various issues and ways in some ways that people have learned to deal with trauma because it's a there is a lot of trauma in the trans community and a lot of there's there's trauma just in not being told told you're not who you are for a very long period of time or the ways you're bullied out there in the world or just it's traumatizing to be a part of the world in the u.s right now and the messages that are out there that are hitting us politically so um or the trauma that our family goes through, or our parents go through in the process of their trying to figure all this stuff out. You know, we know it influences everybody in that. So uh, I, I wonder sometimes if if some of the the autistic traits or the neurodivergent traits that I see are really can be also assigned to trauma. And so I think we, we need to be good at unpacking some of those kinds of things. But yeah, it's the. I don't. I, I very rarely anymore get the case where it's some, everything's really straightforward. <laughs> so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in the the richness in which you're describing the work, uh, seems to harbor a lot of complexity. I, I guess there's a way. I, well, I quickly want to. Um, it feels important to acknowledge my own uh, kind of heterosexual and cisgendered world that I'm interpreting mm-hmm. your statements from. So, I guess I want to say that as a way of being held accountable to some of the ways I might be conceptualizing or questioning or asking some questions from. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that kind of is capturing my attention is the way that you said something about that the hard part with families used to be this history that there was like a real hold by binary understandings on families and some ways that you were supporting families and kind of shaking off some of those rigid ways of framing gender and people's experiences to a context where there's perhaps more understanding by parents um, and that there's a political landscape, which a lot of questions are being kind of imposed onto and into families, if that's a fair capture. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate some of the ways that you're describing the ambiguous loss that parents are going through and ways that they're positioned to make predictions of what's going to happen in a child and perhaps ways that you might not be invited to otherwise, mm-hmm. which I have a great appreciation for in my daughter, uh, Layla. She's four now. And I recall when she was in the womb. And I was excited and I found out, you know, the whole gender thing that they do or I guess sex. Right. Right. Um, I remember I was in a classroom setting and I was talking with some students and one of the students in that um, group that I was talking to identified as a uh, as trans. And I remember I was talking about all the exciting things about having a daughter. And she kind of like very gently paused me and was like, you know, like so much of what you're imagining is so deeply imbued with gendered assumptions about who she is and what she's going to do. And I just, I feel forever grateful to that student. I wonder where they're at now. If you, mm-hmm. if you're listening, you know who you are. Thank you. Because it really slowed down. I, I feel like it allowed for a much richer relationship with my daughter now, because I'm not like, con- there's not a predictive landscape of where things should go, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And a slowness. So I'm grateful to that. What I guess I'm wondering about, if it's okay to ask, is you're describing some of the ways that you're supporting families in understanding their, or parents understanding their children in this context, trans youth, right? I'm curious about 
the ways that you're working with trans youth and understanding their parents, if that's even a correct framing. Yeah. Because I imagine, too, some of this intersects with your own personal life, too. So, yeah. And I, I mean, I, <clears throat> historically, I have a, I have a passion for families. Obviously, I wouldn't be a part of all this. <laughs> and, and, and maybe my cultural upbringing as well in the being, having a very traditional Italian side of my family that really mm. taught me the sense of family. Um, I, I have a feeling has a, an impact <laughs> on how I view things. Um, and I think it, I'm going to answer your question in two ways. One is to look at what I help trans youth understand about their parents um, and also what I help parents understand about themselves. So um, I, I have, I actually co-created a developmental model with parents on what their journey is um, with the Trans Family Alliance parents and um, showing what, what the path is for parents and how they kind of navigate their, their gender journey when a kid comes out as trans or non-binary. And starting with the deer in the headlights, I don't know what this is all about, scared to death space, all the way to being, you know, feeling completely changed by the experience in a beautiful way mm. and possibly even being an advocate, you know, for the trans community and their kids. Um, in one way or another, they usually end up in that space, just trying to navigate spaces for their kids. But um, even for themselves and many parents who have made it through this whole journey, find that they come to a place where they are so changed by the experience that they can't imagine you know, like where they were before because it opens up a whole world of things they'd never thought about. And it's really so beautiful to watch when parents get to that place. What I tell kids often, because when they come into my office, they are usually right in the very, they're in phase one or they're or barely there and they're just scared to death. And, and the kids are way down the road developmentally on where they are. They've done all this work. They figured out where they are. They finally come out done, and they need help. And parents are slowing things way down. And we're often uh, talking about where the, the discrepancy is between the parents around that and the kids. And, and I help, I help the parents see their kids. The reason why they're doing this because they've been through all of these various phases and they're in this other space and developmentally the parents are in this this other space and I help the kids see the same thing. So when they see that their parents are just starting out on a journey that they've already been on for a long time and they've, you know, haven't been sharing it. So their parents usually weren't along for the ride <laughs> and they, you know, I say, you know, when you first figured this out or figured out something was going on, did you just like suddenly come out and tell everybody, Oh, wait, Hey, I just awesome. I just found out I'm trans. <laughs> usually not. Usually you figure this thing is out. You figure something's going on and you get scared and you try to figure out how it's not. Or you spent a lot of time researching and trying to figure out, is this authentic? Or maybe you figured out with your friends, but you don't tell your parents until you actually need something. You need their help. And now you're way down the road. You know a lot. You're, you know, gender savvy. <laughs> your parents don't. You know, they're, they're living in wherever, you know, they've been around gender, right. often in a very binary place. Because, you know, I always joke that, you know, kids don't come with manuals. <laughs> they certainly don't come with them around gender. Although That's right. every single parent is raised in a culture that teaches you how to do gender on some level. Right. Right. And, and so that's the piece that I think about. I do an unpacking gender workshop that I do for parents and for clinicians, but the, for parents, it's really about them getting themselves in focus and learning what the, not only how they came to know who they were as gendered beings and understanding that we all have gender, we all have sexuality, we all have gender. Um, and we all come to know it in very much the same ways. 
the difference is when it, there's a discrepancy between your internal sense of self and your body, then you can end up with, you know, gender dysphoria and gender incongruence and that kind of stuff. And that creates a whole painful experience that cisgender people don't have. But coming to know your gender is something that everybody has an experience of. But cisgender people generally don't know that they did <laughs> because everything matched or right. mostly matched. They have some maybe witnessing of not fitting in, like girls who were tomboys or, you know, they had a label for it, but they they weren't misaligned with their body so much as what they were allowed to do and things like that. In some cases, they were a little misaligned with their body, but they found their way into it um, with things. And it wasn't, um, it maybe was more of a non-binary experience today than a, you know, a, I need to transition kind of experience. But um, many parents are, have, you know, they have parents themselves who are often telling them how they're supposed to do gender, how, what it means. They question their kids when their kids are letting their, their own offspring transition or explore gender. You know, that so there's a lot of rules around that, especially, and if you come from a religious background or a cultural background where there are a lot of rules around who does what, and they're very gendered, um, that's a lot to unpack pack as a parent. And I think one of the narratives for a lot of parents is that you're responsible to properly gender your child, you know, and if you don't, you failed. And, and so that holding that sort of story, I mean, that's one of those stories we have to unpack because um, that influences how you show up and how you feel about not only your, your kid, but yourself as a parent. Right. And, and that can't, there's no way having that kind of narrative isn't going to impact what you do and how you react. Even if you feel like it'll be a discrepancy if you're really affirming, like I totally see my kid, I know this is who my kid is, and yet you're holding all of these stories about what it means about you that your kid ended up this way, right? Um, so there's a lot of that. That kind of I find a lot of my work is more with parents than with the kids. Um, and sometimes parents are also in different developmental places. So some of it's couples work, helping the parents get on board and understand where they are and get to the same place and also give each other space right. for their journey around that. So I so appreciate that. Cause I, I guess my curiosity follows some of my experience working with the uh, Middle Eastern refugee communities out here in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the, there's been contexts where our work with the children who are identifying as trans is underground mm-hmm. because there's a real sense of lack of safety or uh, mm-hmm. fear, like legitimate fear about coming out um, to their parents who are just, you know, immigrated to the United States or were displaced to the United States, harbor some fairly conservative ideas by perhaps our standards. Mm-hmm. The idea that like uh, notions of trans equality or LGBTQIA issues are part of American imperialism, which creates this like really difficult thing to shake off. And so I was recently in conversation with some students who, when they came in contact with the work that some of our therapists are doing, where they're talking in English with the kid about their experience, because mom doesn't speak English. Some of the parents in the group were like, isn't that unethical? Like you're kind of hiding this thing from the parents. And it was kind of a beautiful conversation of, well, like, What's the other option? I don't know. So I actually don't know. That's like a big ethical quandary I'm in. And so, so my curiosity for you is like, well, how, how, yeah, in that intersection between the kids and the parents, like, how are we, how are you negotiating some of that stuff? Yeah. I'm, I mean, 
Ultimately, I believe that kids need their parents, unless their parents are extremely abusive or there's some something in the system that's going to make it impossible for them to cross that that barrier. But what I find, I mean, and I maybe it's because I I am a champion for love. <laughs> and I think that, you know, most parents, 99.9% of parents really love their kids. And um they do not want to harm them. And often parents hold rigid ideas around how things are supposed to be because they feel that's what's right for their kids, you know, because anything else is harmful. And if you're coming from a country in particular that holds trans identity as maybe lethal, like we can kill you because this is who you are or, you know, the, or extreme pathology, Right. I mean, in those communities, there's not a belief that transgender identities actually exist. They're they're purely pathology, and they're problematic, and they undermine the system. And um, and I think there's a piece to that in when we upend gender, <clears throat> um, and we we start being expansive about it. It also undermines gender roles, and many uh, conservative um, religions, in particular, are based on gender roles and who does what and the power structures around that. And if you undermine that, um, it does shake up the foundation for a lot of people. And and some people that's far too scary or they risk, you know, um, the fear that they risk harm themselves or harm to the rest of their family. And sometimes it's like we have to hold this apart because everybody else will be impacted in a negative way by this. And, and we have, so that's part of the cultural context we absolutely have to understand. I know in my work, I've worked with a lot of really conservative parents and I find that almost always when it comes down to their kids' well-being and, and living, uh, that's where, that's where in, they shift because they love their kid and they, when they can actually get their kids in focus and actually those are the conversations where you can get out of the, the narrative that you're being taught or you've been told and you can set that aside for a minute to just hear your kid and have those conversations about what's really authentic and begin to understand, you know, I, I truly believe that the, the transgender experience is one where your brain actually went one way and your body went another and and there's a, a mental image in your mind of what you're supposed to see when you look in the mirror. And, and for us, where it went the wrong direction, we look in the mirror, we can't see ourselves. Our families mirror us and they don't see us. We don't exist. And it's it's an existential pain and an existential panic. And when parents actually see, actually see that pain and really get that this is not their fault, that you know systems that they're in are don't understand this thing they're they're laying something else on it when they begin to see that they will opt for whatever's best for their child in that moment and you know i've asked some parents like why did you choose this <laughs> like why did you let your kid have chest surgery at 15 and that, and i had one mom who said i would rather have a trans kid than a dead kid you know, and it was like you know, when you have a kid who comes to that place where there's there and you'll see that in very conservative areas where kids will hold it back. And this is another thing around racial identity as well is kids will hold back as long as they can. And they often don't come out unless they absolutely cannot keep moving forward without being who they are. 
because they understand the impact on the family to come out as trans because it's a mark, right? And they in in certain communities that's exactly it. it in you know here in the African American community that um, there's enough oppression and discrimination and all the rest. If you add this piece to it, it's kind of like we're okay with the underground, but like being up and out there with everybody creates just another mark that people can go after. And then of course the fear for parents of color who know the statistic, they know the statistics on particularly if they have a trans girl, trans women of color and the violence and the, you know, I think about 10 years ago, I was, it's probably been 10 years now. I feel like yesterday uh, I was listening to a trans woman, a, a black trans woman talk about the fact that in her community, the average lifespan was 35 years. Wow. And that was not because they were unhealthy. It was because of violence. Okay. Right. And, and that's, that's a reality okay. that we have to like look at. Um, and as parents, when they get some of those messaging, it's like, no, you don't want your kid to go down this path if you can stop that. And, but when you see that this is actually authentic and the cost that your kid has to pay not to go there, I think that's the, that's the deciding factor for parents. It's like, you, you know, the, they're going to opt for their kid in any way they can. The other piece of it I would say for parents in conservative communities is they can lose access to their own resources by supporting their kid. And it's been, it's happened quite a bit where parents lose if they're in a, in a religious community that that community ostracizes them and they no longer have the people that have been their supports. Families can ostracize you for supporting your kid. And, I, and that's true across the board. I have, you know, white families in the U S where they're, parents have said, no, nope, sorry, you know, or they've said and done things that the parents are like, okay, you're not, you're, you're harming my child. So we have to distance ourselves. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a tough space because of, and with all this misinformation out there, it just makes it harder, you know? Yeah. yeah I'm really, really drawn to this uh, champion for love that you're describing. Cause you know, let me know if this is a fair way to describe it, like in, in kind of like the narrative terms of, perhaps mapping out the landscape of love across some oh, of the yeah. relationships. Um, and I, I imagine too, that when you have parents, I mean, let me know if this is a fair assumption that like when you're having parents really slow down, identify a name and follow the ethics of love and the ways that you want to position your kid's life. Mm -hmm. um, and then you start to see the world from their perspective. I can imagine a lot of movement into some activism, mm -hmm. like standing with your kid and standing for your kid. Yeah. And for yourself. I mean, it's, it's all of that. And, and for the community. I, I think another piece of it that I think parents don't realize, they may be afraid of accessing the transgender community, but when they do, um, it's so powerful because they begin to see options for their kids beyond the negative messaging they hear about and beyond the media representations that are so distorted, right. um, that they actually begin to see that your kid can actually live a happy, well-adjusted, you know, life um, when, when really fully supported and, and finds that authentic representation. I have a, a woman who works for me, a trans woman who's in Mexico, and she is really involved with Trans Familias, which is the a parent group in Mexico City for uh, trans, for parents of trans youth. And uh, what's amazing is that for those parents, 
not only connecting with other parents, but connecting with trans people and realizing, you know, wow, okay, <laughs> my kid can survive. <laughs> like this isn't, you know, the, the, and just finding other ways to do stuff to be really there with their kids. Also listening to the stories of kids who lost their parents or adults who lost their parents in the process and, and realizing the pain that that causes and not wanting to see that happen to their kids. So it's, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm grateful for the, I mean, maybe it's selfish, I don't know, but for my own cisgendered world, there's a gratitude I have for like some of the the liberation of some discourses um, mm -hmm. through this process in the sense of like, well, you know, you and I were talking briefly about our relationship to music and playing music before and something that I've noticed in my musical communities, like Specifically, for example, I have a, uh, there was a band I was playing with, uh, kind of like a heavier rock band. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys um, in the group, he loved to wear makeup and uh, he would usually uh, dress in women's clothing for the shows. And I remember talking to him after a show and he was saying like, and, and it, I, it stands out to me because in, it's one thing to have these conversations in academia, but this is like outside of a bar, right before a show with a person who you would if you had to like look at him make some assumptions about his stances you would never i would have never anticipated what he was about to say where he said i'm really grateful for the trans movement because it allows me to just feel super comfortable like right now wearing this dress on the street with makeup on about to go in there and play guitar just feels so good um and thinking too about my time at this when i was at a domestic violence emergency shelter there was a mom who came through um with uh their trans daughter and really quickly identified that our services, especially in the DV world, are so gender specific, quickly identified how broken our services were and not fitting of that community and really act, um, what's the word, uh, kind of pushed our community, the staff to like really shift our, so, sh so they really, I mean, that idea from Spade that social justice trickles up, right? Like really made space for kind of everyone in the shelter mm. uh, by advocating for, yeah. And, and that's where I would say that um, silence is problematic, you know, and it's really tough for trans people and for parents to step into the limelight and you know, not called limelight, but, the, you know, step into the light and, and to share their stories and to share with people around them. But we do know and we learned this from the gay and lesbian civil rights movement is knowing people who are part of a community and getting to know them on a personal level changes how you feel about the group. And, and as, um, you know, people come out rather than hiding um, and, and are more visible when they can, because it's also extraordinarily unsafe for people in particular locations to do that. <clears throat> but when you can, being able to touch people in that way changes the narrative politically and socially because they begin to realize that a lot of the stories they heard, what they've, they've heard and believed aren't actually true. I mean, I'm in an ongoing narrative. I know that I had this, this epiphany on the after stage of, of uh, my not believing that parents would actually go into activism. And so I withheld that as an option for parents mm -hmm. um, until I unpacked my own story around that and realized because my parents are not, they would never get caught dead doing any activism, right? Mm -hmm. And I know they love me. And still there was that piece of that's never going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, and because it didn't happen for me, I didn't actually hold it as a possibility. So I had to do a lot of unpacking of my own 
um, stuff, even as a trans person around what's possible for the parents I work with. And, and they really taught me a lot as I watch what they're able to do. And, and now I see it as a part of the resilience that families build when they're able to move into those spaces and stand solid and unapologetically say who they are and what they're doing and when, when it's safe to do. I mean, I'm, I'm in an ongoing discussion with my mother who has very different beliefs than I do. And so I'm constantly sending her, you know, information about, well, this is misinformation and this is what we know, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, so it's an ongoing uh, thing I live as well as work. So, And Sean, if it's okay to ask and, uh, you know, uh, being mindful of time. So I, I'm going to be careful about asking a kind of a big question at the <laughs> end, but I'm kind of curious, like, how do you find yourself? How do I ask this? I, I guess I'm imagining that it can be kind of difficult to be confronted with some of the perspectives that some of the parents are holding or some of the community members with the folks that you're working with are holding and then project to you as someone who's also identifying with the community. Uh, how do you maintain that compassion or that, I guess, love necessary yeah. to do the work? Well, compassion is a good word. <clears throat> I do maintain that. And it, because I understand the journey and I understand that a lot of where parents come from is from misinformation and I also assume upfront that they love their kids. And, and I hold compassion for that process because I've watched it happen. You know, we've all had our own experience around that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. I had another thought that I intersected with that in some way. Um, hmm. <laughs> well, I will say, and if you remember, please interrupt me. I'll, I'll just say that, like, I am really something that I've been trying to understand in my work in the past decade or so is like the politics of revolutionary love. And I just feel like the work you're describing, at least in my mind, if it's fair to say, I'm going to like kind of pocket into that book of practices of revolutionary love, like the, the compassion necessary to stay connected with parents who are struggling to understand their children's identity compassion and love necessary to like or just like starting out with the assumption that love exists is so beautiful um how it is that you're excavating it and making it a central ethic as families are trying to in different timelines move through this process i think i, I don't take things personally you know in that that way like i've had a lot of parents say all kinds of things in my office it's like they know i'm trans and they still say some things that would just kind of curl the hair that i don't have um <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but I, what I do is I understand, I understand they're in a process and I hold hope and belief that they can work their way through it because they love their kids. And that's sort of that level of compassion that I hold for them and for humanity and the rest. And, um, yeah, I, I just think we need a lot more of that <laughs> in the world and, you know, it's, it doesn't do any good. I can't walk what I talk if I <clears throat> am judging everybody for how they are. And I see a lot of that happening out there. I see, <clears throat> you know, older trans people saying a lot of negative stuff about younger trans people and younger trans people saying, you know, like it happens in the trans community. But then I, it's, it's all over the place of us just not accepting diversity and the different ways that we show up and we embody who we are. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I think that when we find that that authentic embodiment, you know, 
for parents when they watch their kid really, or anybody, a partner, they watch their, they watch people blossom into who they are. Um, it changes your perspective. And that's what I think when you start seeing some of that advocacy and, and those kinds of things come up. So, um, one thing I would say, there's a, um, if you don't know of a, a loc, uh, I would definitely look them up. They're non-binary, uh, beautiful human being who speaks very powerfully about the intersections of, you know, their, um, East Indian descent. Um, and. Will you say the name again? Alok. Alok. Okay. And I think it's Vaid Neiman. Neiman. No, I'm going to mispronounce their name, but they did a podcast on, uh, the Man Enough podcast. Uh, they were an, a guest on that. And, um, oh, I actually know who you're talking about. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. They're well worth, I mean, reading, listening to amazing human being. And they talk a lot about having to have compassion and, and, and that we need more of that in the world for all of us. And I, and I, that for me, that would be what I would want to embody is that with everybody. So, well, I will say that, uh, I'm grateful for the ways that you're modeling that for me and perhaps folks listening and for the families you're working with. And I think to your point, like uh, this call for a little bit more compassion and understanding and love in the world is um, one I'm not just with a lot of gratitude for, but it's really visible in your work. Mm. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. It's fun to, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I'm a little insane, but I, <clears throat> starting the, the Gender Health Training Institute and the Trans Family Alliance all in the same. The COVID is like, you know, I ended up with too much time on my hands or something. <laughs> well, I think, I think too, with a, I think I'll speak at least for the after therapy community. Like, we're all here to do some really good work. And I think in the broader effort for social justice, sometimes, at least for me, it can get stressful. Like, oh my God, there's so much social justice work that needs to be done. Right. So it's nice to know that there's some really good work being done in all the lanes and yeah, I can be settled knowing that you're out there doing <laughs> the work and I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well thank, thank you, you so much for joining us today. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, a recommendation to all of our listeners to take a look you up. Uh, it seems like you have a wide breadth of teachings and, uh, workshops that you do as well as some writing. So yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.